Please open in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. This morning we'll be looking at Galatians 6, verses 6 through 10. If you're using a Bible that we've given to you or you found on the back table, that's page 975. I'm not much of a gardener but I think I know most of the basics of gardening. I know that if you buy tomato seeds, you plant tomatoes, seeds, given the right conditions, you should get tomatoes. If you end up with a jalapeno, there's been some mix-up. I know that patience is involved, that you'll have to do some prep work, you know, have the right soil, have the right conditions. You'll have to perhaps weed the garden. You might need to put a stake to let that tomato vine climb. And you might do quite a bit of work before you ever see a tomato. For some time, you're going to see a, a fuzzy vine, and it might smell a little funny, and you'll see nothing really that's encouraging besides the green growth. And in that sense, gardening requires something like faith. That if I keep tending this vine and keep watering, Eventually, the fruit will come, and I'll be able to make salsa or something like that. If you get bored and give up on the tomato vine while it's still growing, it's pretty likely you're not going to see any fruit. Maybe you will, but just as well the, the sun will bleach out the, the fruit, or the, the birds will come peck it away, the squirrels will take it away. If you give up, you're likely going to fail at gardening. You've got to see it through to the end. It may take a few weeks and months. In some places, it may take years if you're growing a tree from a seed. But if you stick with it, it will pay off. Eventually, you will reap what you sowed. The Apostle Paul would use this basic imagery, of this basic, these basic lessons of, of sowing and reaping to teach us about the Christian life. And it's a lesson that holds a promise and a warning. The promise is that those who sow to the Spirit will reap eternal life. The warning is the, the one who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption or perhaps destruction. This morning we're going to be walking through this warning in Galatians 6, 6 through 10. And the organizing structure will just be to, to look at the warning first, that there's a certain way of life, sowing to the flesh, that leads to hell. And there's a certain way of life by which we reap eternal life. The warning and the promise will be the two points of our sermon. So let's go ahead and read this passage, Galatians 6, 6 through 10, before starting to look at the warning. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, 
and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is God's word. The warning Paul introduces first, we hear a hint of it when, as he's introducing this sowing and reaping metaphor, he says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Given what he says here and some of the other things Paul has said in chapters 5 and 6, we can say that some of the people who were first hearing this letter in these Galatian churches were living careless lives. They were indulging the flesh. They were not watching out for their lives. So Paul wants to warn them, God is not mocked. One place this is used in the scriptures is at the end of Second Chronicles, where we see the, the priests and people of Israel mocking the prophets who had come to warn them, and God bringing judgment with no relent. Well, here God, Paul is saying, God is not mocked. He wants them to know, if you're one of these people saying, because I'm justified, it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter if, if I have faith working through love. Know that God is not mocked. Know that what you reap, you will sow. It seems there were some here who maybe were saying, because we're justified by works, then works are worthless. So Paul is warning them here in a way that corresponds to what he's positively taught. What counts to God, according to Galatians 5.6, is faith working through love. Here in verses 7 and 8 of our passage, Paul takes a passage showing the, the, the problem with thinking that good works are worthless. And again, he uses this word picture of sowing and reaping. He wants us to see that there's something like an organic connection between the way we live now and the way we will spend eternity. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. So like a gardener who, who plants tomato seeds and expects to get tomatoes, if we sow to the flesh, we should expect a fleshly outcome. Paul says we should expect to reap corruption. When we look at the two halves of verse 8, they're set in very strict parallel. The word order in Greek is almost identical. So we have these parallel concepts, and in verse 8, the first half, the concept of corruption is matched up with eternal life in the second half. Those who sow to the Spirit, from the Spirit, reap eternal life. This tells us that this corruption is not just to be understood as some, some stinky fruit in this life, some life going astray in some way or another. It's, it's best understood in an eternal sense, eternal destruction, not just some temporary bad outcomes. Paul is warning us about a kind of life, a kind of sowing to the flesh that leads to hell. The commentator Doug Moose says that we can read these prepositional phrases, sowing to the flesh and sowing to the spirit to mean sowing to please the flesh or sowing to please the spirit. In this sense, again, Paul is reiterating what he's already warned about in Galatians 5, 13 and 16. In Galatians 5, 13, he said we should not use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In Galatians 5, 16, he said we should walk by the spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. We're to be 
careful about our flesh. The late English pastor John Stott explains sowing to the flesh in this way. To sow to the flesh is to pander to it, to cosset it and cuddle it instead of crucifying it. The seeds we sow are largely thoughts and deeds. Every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, nurse a grievance, entertain an impure fantasy, or wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company, whose insidious influence we cannot resist, every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up and praying, every time we read pornographic literature, every time we take a risk which stains, strains our self-control, we are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. Stotts says here that sowing to the flesh includes this broad range of both thoughts and actions. We may seek to please ourselves in ways that are invisible to everybody but God, as when we hold a grudge. And yet there are times when we're sowing to the flesh by our actions. And other people bear the brunt of our self-indulgence. A contemporary reformer of Martin Luther in Germany wrote that sowing to the flesh means to be concerned only about one's own interests, to feed one's own stomach. Similarly, John Calvin said that sowing to the flesh is to provide for the needs of the present life without any regard for the future. In this way, sowing to the flesh may seem very explainable, reasonable, justifiable even. We all need to eat, right? We all need to pull our own weight, right? I should be concerned for myself. This warning from Paul is not meant to condemn us for faithfully working to provide for ourselves and our families. But what, but, but what Paul would have us do is to become more sensitive to the temptation we have to please ourselves. Isn't it easy to approach your working life, your job, in a way that is focused on pleasing yourself? We might be tempted to think of that arena of our life as if it's somehow separate from the rest of our life. I've got to do this thing, got to make money for my family, and I'll do it however it suits me to do, with little regard for doing good to others. What is your internal monologue like when you're at work? Are you living to please yourself in your job? Our thoughts may be the primary way we sow to the flesh. Do we spend time <clears throat> meditating on what we do not have, but what we want? Aren't most of the advertisements we see in meant to encourage this kind of, of covetousness? Or perhaps we are sowing to the flesh by indulging in a worry that a classmate or colleague is going to outcompete us, that they're going to get ahead and get the prize position that we want. We might sow to the flesh by mulling over sexually immoral thoughts. Paul's warning here tells us, don't fan these thoughts into flame. Beware of thinking in a way that pleases your sinful desires. Of course, again, we can sow to the flesh in more overt ways. When we go on an angry tirade and just let loose, we're sowing to the flesh. When we gossip, when we use our words 
to tear down somebody else made in God's image. We're pleasing the flesh. If we bitterly complain, we're sowing to the flesh. And we find often that pleasing the flesh is habit-forming. The more we do it, the easier it becomes to do it more. We get used to doing it. Paul would have us see it's spiritually dangerous to speak and act in ways that please our sinful desires. One specific kind of pleasing the flesh that Paul calls out by name is in verse 6. It has to do with the way we use our money. So right before he issues his warning and introduces his metaphor, Paul commands Christians who've been taught by God's word to share whatever good things they have with those who teach them. I think Lucer expresses the sentiment of most preachers when he says, I do not like to talk about such passages because they commend us and make us look greedy if we spend too much time on them. Nevertheless, people should be taught about this so that they will know that they owe both respect and support to their preachers. Paul frames this not merely in terms of what a Christian owes their preacher. He frames it in the context of sharing, which in the New Testament is a, a very meaningful word. We, we get our word fellowship from it. It involves sharing in each other's sufferings and even in partaking of Christ is, is sharing in his work. He calls us here to share and he calls us to share with those who teach us, I think in context, as a way of sowing to the Spirit. So Paul is applying for us the principle that Christ taught us in Matthew 6.21, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As you treasure the gospel, you want to support gospel ministry. And the opposite of this, a refusal to share and partner in gospel ministry, Paul would see as sowing to the flesh. So this is a call to examine our hearts and ask, what do I value? It's a call to ask, am I living to please my flesh in the way I use the good things God has provided for me? How should Christians think about these warnings against sowing to and pleasing the flesh? This idea that it leads to destruction. We should think in terms of what Paul has said at the end of chapter 2. He said this about himself. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live, that now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He repeats something similar in chapter 524. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What Paul's warning does for us as Christians is it shows us the inconsistency of a Christian who lives to please his flesh even though he's died to sin and he's been raised to new life with Christ. The reasoning is, since we belong to Christ, since Christ gave himself for us, what business do we have with indulging in the thoughts and deeds that lead to destruction? He wants us to see it it doesn't go together. Why should a person who's died to sin and been made alive want to indulge those thoughts? Why would we want to defend or justify those actions? So this warning from Paul for Christians calls us to keep short accounts of our sinful thoughts and deeds. 
since we can each say with Paul, Christ gave himself for me, we should be quick to confess our sinful self-indulgence and to seek forgiveness through the work of Christ for us. Keep short accounts with God. Those thoughts that creep in, that you indulge, confess them. Fight them. Keep short accounts because you have been crucified with Christ and you live to God. But there's probably another category of church attender in Paul's mind that he has as he gives this warning. Perhaps this is the main group. Those who think they are Christians, but they're deceived. Paul's warning is very much like Jesus' own warning in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. You might be helped by turning over there. Jesus says in John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Notice here that Jesus introduces this idea of abiding. He begins by talking about bearing fruit. But as he speaks, the nub of the issue comes out. It's whether one abides or not. The real essence of the issue is faith in Christ. Jesus says in verse 5, Apart from me, you can do nothing. The branch must abide in the vine to bear fruit. And it's those who do not abide in him who are thrown away. Our fruitlessness or fruitfulness reveals whether or not we're abiding, whether or not we're trusting in Christ. A fruitless branch proves it has no life-giving connection to Christ. Both Jesus' teaching and Paul's warning begin with looking at the fruit of our lives and asking, what do they reveal? Are you living to please yourself or living to please God? But that examination should drive us to this deeper question. Do I belong to Christ Am I trusting in his sacrifice for me? Am I living by faith? Without faith in Christ, without God's spirit indwelling us, there's nothing we can do. Nothing we can do to please God. It's worthless to try to manufacture some fruit so we can assure ourselves that we're okay with God. Perhaps you're here, you've thought of yourself as a Christian, but you don't really know what it means to have faith in Christ. You're trying to live some kind of Christian life in the flesh without knowing God's love for you through Jesus. Maybe that means you've been trying to obey some set of rules for living. They could be the rules that you imagine your parents have for you, or maybe they are rules that you've invented yourself. But know that if that's the way you're living, you're relying on yourself and you can't save yourself. Paul's been telling us that over and over again in this letter. 
And Paul's calling on all of us who hear this letter to examine ourselves and ask, what's ruling my life? Am I ruled by a desire to please myself? Am I flattering my pride by thinking that I can be good enough to reach God on my own? Am I saying I'm a Christian, but yet my whole life is dominated by a desire to be popular or powerful, a desire to be comfortable or first in my class? Are your thoughts, words, and deeds only and all about yourself? Another way to get at the same question is to ask, is there true repentance in my life? Are are you growing in your hatred of sin? And do you hate your sin because it dishonors and it displeases God? Or do you only hate the way your sin makes you feel? When we're engaged in a cycle of sin and false repentance, we hate sin because it makes us feel like a failure or because it makes us feel dirty and ashamed. But our thoughts about sin have little to do with God. We sin and then maybe we throw up a desperate prayer of sorrow, but eventually the feeling passes and we move on. In true repentance, as we're growing in true repentance, we we are growing and have a greater sense of falling short of God's glory than of our own bad feelings. See, false repentance is really just another way of indulging the flesh, beating ourselves up and maybe feeling like we've paid for our sin. It's sorrowful, but not sorrow that leads to true repentance or true faith in Christ's forgiveness. If we sow to the flesh, we will reap corruption. If our religiosity is merely trying to keep a set of rules, we will not reap eternal life. If we live to please our flesh, if we live for our our own popularity or power or pleasure, then your popularity and your power and your pleasure, that will be all you have when you face God as judge. Your fleshly sowing will reap that fleshly reward. And ultimately that reward will be eternal death, experiencing God's anger against sin forever. That's Paul's warning. Living to the flesh, living to please the flesh, is the life that leads to hell, a life that leads to destruction. But what about Paul's promise the second half of the verse of verse 8 says that the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. When we read this metaphor about sowing and reaping eternal life, our spidey senses start to tingle. Aha! Paul is saying we're saved by our works, isn't he? That's what this means. We can re- earn this reward of eternal life by sowing to, to the Spirit, to please the Spirit. But just give this a moment's thought. Paul has spent an entire letter telling us we cannot be justified by our works in God's sight. What sense would it make for him to spend five and a half, six chapters arguing a point that we are justified by faith in Christ alone, now only to reverse themselves? They know here are some works by which you can earn eternal life. That's not what Paul is saying here. A helpful explanation I found for what's going on here is from a reformer named Caspar Olivianus. It's a great reformed German name, right? Caspar Olivianus. Those of you who may have children, you might think of using this name, Caspar. 
He's a good one. Or go big with Olivianus, underused probably. He says, does this mean that salvation is here attributed to good works? My answer to that is no. But after we have been adopted by the Spirit and assured of our salvation, he promises a reward, not because of the value of our works, but because we are first of all children and saved. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Notice that proof text he uses there, Romans 6.23. What is eternal life? Is it the wages of a life well lived? It's the gift of God. As Olivianus says, this gift is given to God's people, not because of the value of our works, but because we are sons of God by faith. Even though we can say there is this organic connection between a life of pleasing God and eternal life, we do not say that it's a, a causal relationship. We don't say that we earn eternal life because we have done enough to please God. Instead, in God's kingdom, eternal life follows a life of pleasing God. But we enter into that life. We remain in that life. We walk in that life by faith with the power of the Spirit. It's life in the Spirit, which is a life of faith that pleases God. We please the Spirit. We please God by faith, working through love. So we can't imagine that this life of pleasing the Spirit is somehow disconnected from faith because there's, there's no way to please God apart from faith. Faithless effort does not please God. Faithless law-keeping or rule-keeping does not please God. Faithless love does not please God. But in God's grace, he regards our faithful effort as pleasing to him. He's pleased to receive our good works offered in Christ's name as a sacrifice. Isn't that what Stephanie read for us earlier in Hebrews 13? And didn't we read there as well that God equips us with everything good that you may do his will. Where do we get the ability to do good? Where do we get the goodness that we pass on? It's all from God. So these works of pleasing the Spirit, of sowing to the Spirit, these are God's works in us. It's God's Spirit doing it. It's common as good reform people who have a healthy view of our unrighteousness to often say that our righteousness is as filthy rags. It gets a quote from Isaiah. It's a, it's a good quote. It's especially helpful for looking at us in our fallen state. All the good things we do amount to nothing but filthy rags. But in Christ, those filled by the Spirit, our good deeds are pleasing to God because they are produced by the Spirit and they are washed in Christ's blood. He is pleased to receive them as our offering, as our sacrifice to him. And so God is pleased to reward us because he is good and because he is gracious. He's pleased to reward us when we live a life of faith, a life pleasing to him. So that's my attempt to answer the big question. Is Paul now arguing for works? But we should try to get more practical. How do we live a life pleasing to the Spirit? How do we sow to the Spirit? 
we can deduce a few things from the text. Going back to verse 6, where Paul calls on us to share all good things with those who teach us, it's clear that one way we sow to the Spirit is by valuing the gospel. The words that are here taught and one who teaches, those are words you might recognize as um, be catechized. And in the New Testament, they're typically used for formal gospel instruction. So those who are taught the gospel should share all good things with those who teach them the gospel. One way we sow to the Spirit is to value the gospel. So yes, this can mean you know, monetarily valuing it, that our, where our treasure is, our heart is, that we, we give to the work of the ministry. We, we support pastors who preach the word to us. We partner with ministries who are, are preaching the gospel all around the world. So there's, you can think of this in a, in a monetary sense, that we value the gospel very literally. But it should have a much broader application than that. We sow to the Spirit by treasuring the gospel in our own hearts by applying the gospel. In this way, Paul is building on all that he's already spoken of in Galatians. You can imagine how important this would be for the Galatian church where they've been rocked by this false doctrine that's crept in. And now Paul is saying, you know, don't, don't become non-doctrinal, rather cherish the gospel. You've spent some time, some of you, wasted effort sowing to, to false gospels. You've been sowing to the flesh by believing that you can save yourself through observing the law. It's time to, to stop that and sow to the Spirit by remembering that you've been crucified with Christ, by remembering that Christ gave himself for you. That's one of the most amazing things about this letter is how personal it is for Paul. We, we started off talking that way when we looked at Galatians 1 and 2, how Paul spends a lot of time on his personal biography. But there's that climax at the end of, of chapter 2 where he talks about how Christ gave himself for me. Can you imagine what Paul may have, have thought about? I, I heard Mark Dever preach a sermon about this, and he, he remarked on how Paul must have had many things arise to accuse him. Right? He had all the memory of his legalism and of his persecution of Christians. And what can he say when he's accused? Christ gave himself me. Brothers and sisters, we sow to the Spirit by treasuring that. Christ gave himself for you and for me. We sow to the Spirit when we value this above all. When we say, uh, preach the gospel to yourself every day or live a gospel-centered life, we're just trying to find kind of contemporary ways of, of saying what Paul says. Sow to the Spirit. Live your life in such a way as you please God's Spirit. What is God's Spirit pleased to do? He's pleased to point your eyes to Jesus, the one who gave himself for you. I started reading a book I got in the mail yesterday that says this, the Spirit's work is deflective. It deflects our attention from him to God the Father and God the Son. And that's exactly what we see him doing here. He's deflecting our eyes to Christ. So you can keep in step with the Spirit by meditating on the truth of the gospel, by valuing all that is yours in Christ, that you have died to sin, you've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, and you are alive to God, that you are adopted. All of the great gospel truths we've been meditating on, sow to the Spirit by meditating on them every day, by treasuring them above all.
Second, so do the Spirit by enduring, enduing good. This is the way that Paul applies this directly in verse 9. Let us not grow weary in do, of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So to the Spirit by doing good. It's so simple. Yet this is so big, too. What, what doesn't fit inside of doing good in terms of the scriptural commands? This, this is everything, Right? So we, we can list the, the doing good of, of sharing your good things with, with, your, with your pastor, the doing good of, of helping the poor, the doing good of, of loving your neighbor as yourself, the doing good of, of caring for children or an elderly relative. Right? Doing good is what Paul calls us to. If we want to sow to the Spirit, we should know what is good and do it. So we could break this down a little further, right? To, to sow to the Spirit and, and know what is good requires us to know God's Word, right? The, the Word that the Spirit himself inspired. So we, we can't do good without being students of God's Word and knowing what is good. So every time you're reading to the, the Scriptures, you can think of it as sowing to the Spirit. I'm living to please God right now by teaching my mind what is good and what is evil and then seeking to do what is good whatever you have opportunity to do do it we'll talk in a second about this last verse but it's it's again the the category of what is good can include a myriad of things and that's one of the i think blessings of being in a church is that lord willing he'll have convinced us all we must do good in our homes if we're if we're parents and, and and we're married we have we have people there in our lives to do good to. And if we neglect that good, then all the other good we do is, is worthless. So it starts there. But, but we know that, that Gio has a job in southwest Houston, and he recently went to Taiwan, and he had opportunity to do, to do good as he went, right? And, and you might have a, a desire to do good in a certain sphere, and mom has a desire to do good through CareNet, right? And you, we all have different giftings and different opportunities, different uh, imaginations, different God-given gifts. Whatever you have, wherever you are, do good. It may be that you know, your good doing is a place where we can come alongside you and at least pray for you, or maybe we can join as a church in the good that you're doing. But we can sow to the Spirit by doing what pleases God. We also can mine a little more out of this, where Paul says that we should not grow weary in doing good. We should not give up. So think back to our, our agricultural metaphor, right? If you, if you stop caring for the plant a few weeks in, you know, you've, you've really wasted some energy there. You're not going to reap the harvest. Paul's calling us here to playing the long game, to understanding that sowing to the Spirit will require patience, endurance. We can't give up halfway through. It will often be true, again, just like, just like the, the tomato plant. You know, it sprouts, it's green, but there's no buds, there's no fruit at first. We'll have to trust that, that this thing is going to turn out okay. Consider your investments in the people in your lives. Like, do you have a guarantee that you will, in this life, you'll reap what you sow? That your investment of love and attention, that you're going to see that person change and grow in all the ways you want them to? We don't have that guarantee, right? Consider our evangelism. Don't we often have to plant seed 
trusting that the Lord will make that seed grow. And we may never be the ones that get to reap that seed. We may never get the ones to see that person profess faith in Christ. You can think of almost every area of the Christian life and understand that it's an area that requires working and waiting and trusting God to do the work. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus uses a collection of agricultural images. You know, the most famous, of course, is the parable of the sower, where, where the sower seeds the, uh, sows the word and, and reaps fruit. But, but there's another one in there, a very short one, a parable about the, the seed that works, but we know not how. And it talks about a, a farmer who, who plants the seed, and then he sleeps and rises, and the seed grows, but he knows not how. That's what the kingdom of God is like. So we plant the seed, we do good, we sleep and rise, and we trust that God will work, even if we don't know how. We trust that it's going to be him that produces the fruit in each other's lives. This kind of brings us right back to the fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and patience. To do good means to do good in, in all those ways. We must be patient and not grow weary. The fact that, that Paul says not to grow weary must tell us this is going to be a big temptation. We're going to want to give up. You know, we can imagine brothers and sisters who are enduring persecution, how difficult it is for them to keep going, for them to keep enduring and doing good. But even us who lead relatively easy lives know this temptation, right? We don't see the change. We continually battling the same sin, whether it's in our own heart or in the, the, the hearts of those close to us. And we think, what's the point of going on? Paul calls us not to grow weary of doing good. And we, we must imagine here that, that prayer is a huge part of this. We sow to the Spirit by prayer. We endure by prayer. Don't grow weary in praying for those you love, for God's word to do the work. And we, we try to model that by not growing weary in praying for a building. Right? We've been praying for it consistently now, I think for over a year in our public worship services. Maybe you're tired of us praying it. Maybe you say, let's take a week off, maybe a few months off for praying that. You know? But no, we're, we're trying to be like the importunate widow. Right? She didn't grow weary in bringing her request to the judge. And we want to be like that, not just for buildings, but for the salvation of our family and for, the, for our witness in the world. Don't give up. Keep praying. Sow to the Spirit. Live to please God by prayer. Do you, do you think that your prayers please God? They do. God is pleased when we cry out to him in prayer. So sow to the Spirit by enduring and doing good, by attending to his word, by doing whatever good God has given you, and by persisting in prayer. If you start doing a word search of some kind on these words of don't grow weary and not giving up, you'll just find that scripture is full of them from Again, Jesus' own words to Hebrews, right? It's just over and over again. We could have picked 15 passages that would have encouraged you to keep going. So we have to understand this is just part of our Christian life, the temptation to give up and the call to endure. And how do we endure? By faith in God's love for us in Christ and knowing that he will do the work. Finally, we please God's spirit by doing good to God's people. Paul says in verse 10, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is such a kindness that God gives us this instruction. Because it's both comprehensive, 
right? Again, everyone's included. But we know how hard it is to do good to everyone, right? And I think this is a, a special uh, pain we feel living in the 21st century, right? You can uh, dial up the news on your phone and you're going to find out about, you know, tens of thousands of people dead in Libyan floods, right? Thousands of people dead in, in earthquakes in Morocco. Over 100 dead in wildfires in Maui, right? And that's just a few things, right? We could list them ad nauseum, things far away and close to home. You could, you could give money to all those causes and be doing good and relief, relief efforts. Or I could tell you about 15 different gospel ministries that are doing good work that you could support. And, and by God's grace, we should try to support some of them, right? But, but we also know we're limited. And so the Lord gives us a place to start. We've already hinted, we, we know a place to start is within our own homes, we're called to care for those closest to us. But Paul calls us to do good, especially to those are of the, who are of the household of faith. So to the Spirit, live to please God by doing good to your brothers and sisters here in this church. Notice that Paul uses this imagery of the household. Think back to how many times in this letter he said brothers. He says that at the beginning of chapter 6, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him. We are the brotherhood and the sisterhood. We are a family. We are God's household. So just as we understand kind of naturally, we take care of those in our own home, we also understand that but this is our home. This is our family. And so we, we seek to, to watch out for the welfare of one another, to do good. To each other. We please God's Spirit by caring for each other. One of the ways we try to define discipleship in our church or disciple making is by intentionally doing spiritual good to another person. Intentionally do spiritual good to others. And that can include a lot of things. Right? That can include just meeting up for coffee and talking about the passage in Scripture that God's laid on your heart. It can include just a text message of saying, I'm praying for you today. Or it could include you know, something more formal, where we're meeting with a brother who's young in the faith and trying to help him along. We want, we want to see all of our life in the church as disciple-making work. So our volunteers in, in the nursery today, they're, they're disciple-making work. Now they, they might not be able, effectively evangelizing the children in there, but they're allowing the parents and grandparents to be here and be discipled. I hope that you see your, your work in the nursery, even if it doesn't feel very fulfilling, is disciple-making. You're seeking to do spiritual good to your brothers and sisters. Praying for each other, as we encourage you to get, the, get the, the currently purple directories and pray through them, is a way that I hope that you're doing spiritual good to us. Pray that we would be growing in our faith in Christ and, and not indulging the flesh. We do spiritual good in terms of... Uh, helping to meet practical needs. Even in that, we're trying to help our brothers and sisters see there's a God who loves you and who provides for you, and he's using us to help you meet those needs. We hope that those of you who read scripture on Sunday understand you're, you're doing spiritual good for us. You're letting us hear your voice, read God's word, so that we can read along with you and be encouraged in it. We do spiritual good to each other when we sing songs in church or when we confess the confession of faith. We're using, again, our voices, joining them with each other and saying God's truth. And faith is built up. 
Hopefully we're doing spiritual good to each other when we gather in, in the women's groups or the, the men's groups that we have. Do spiritual good by studying some good book or some book of the Bible and praying for each other. We want everything in our church to, to do, have to do with this kind of spiritual good. And if we find something that we, we start doing and it's really just not doing any spiritual good, then that's a good thing to stop doing. You know, If we just do things for the sake, well, we, we always did it this way, uh, we want to have this kind of rubric in mind to say, well, this, this helps us see what we can eliminate, what may not be doing spiritual good. So we understand ourselves to please the Lord as we try to care for his people. This is a primary area where we live out the call to do good. It's a primary way where we sow to the Spirit. So Paul's question is, where are you sowing? In what field are you laboring? Who are you living to please? And pleasing the flesh offers an immediate payoff, or at least usually some kind of payoff in this life. And it's very tempting to live that way, to live for a payoff in the here and now. But faith the scriptures say, looks to things unseen. Faith looks to eternal life with God. Doing good requires faith in the promises of God. Because again, there may be no immediate measurable benefit to doing good. We do good because God has done good to us. We do good because we're grateful to him for the good he's done, but also because of of the power of his good spirit who indwells us. We do good because we're convinced there is more joy in sacrificial love than there is in self-indulgence. We do good by faith that God is the rewarder of those who seek him, who live to please him. And again, this reward is not a payment for a job well done, but a gift from our good God. Are you living to please him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. And we thank you that you have shown us your goodness so clearly and powerfully in Jesus Christ. As we confessed already today, you are able to be good and to overflow with goodness without ever diminishing. You're relying on nobody else for your goodness. There's no other source that you're drawing from but you are good, and you do good to us. Father, we pray that we would be a people who live in light of your goodness, that we would first trust in your goodness to us in Jesus, and then overflow in goodness to our lost neighbors and to each other. We ask for this in Christ's name. Amen.